Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Pubcasters. I'm Ollie Dugmore bringing you another round of the podcast. Earlier this year, I spoke to writer and radical thinker George Monbiot about why we need a revolution in farming and Russell Brand's connection to the world of far-right conspiracy. Here's the resulting conversation. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show podcast. George Monbiot, hello. How's it going? Yes, all right, thanks. Very glad to have you in the studio. Um, before we get into the meaty issues that we want to discuss today, if perhaps you could tell us who you are in your own words. Sure. I'm a journalist, um, environmental activist, professional troublemaker, um, author, sort of researcher type. Yeah. We're talking, we're going to be talking about oligarchy, conspiracy, and then there'll be a little cameo from uh, Russell Brand later on as well. But let's start with the environment. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the biggest threat to our environment and ecology in the modern world? So to start off, I didn't call it the environment because that is a word which conjures no pictures in the mind at all. It's like some weird thing out there. Whereas actually what we're talking about is everything that sustains us, is the whole earth system that is our life support system. It's everything that is important to us is what we talk about when we use this weird detached word, the environment. So what we're looking at here is a whole series of interlocking amazing systems, ecosystems, oceans, atmosphere, the cryosphere, which means the world's ice and snow, the ocean currents, the air currents, all of these things working together to sustain the habitable space that we call the living planet. Mm. And when those things break down, then the whole lot goes. Basically, if one element of that collapses, it causes a domino effect going bing, 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 knocking down all Earth systems effectively. This is what's happened in previous mass extinctions. That's that's what we call a mass extinction, is basically when Earth systems collapse. You know, what we see in the geological record is individual species disappearing, and we say, oh, yeah, it's sad that the species are gone. No, the whole lot came crashing down. And the one which is most analogous to our situation today is what happened 251 million years ago. Most of your audience won't remember it. Um, It was at the end of the Permian period um, and at the beginning of the Triassic period. Um, and, And what happened was basically a mass fossil fuel burning event. And it was caused by magma, molten rock, being squeezed through sedimentary rocks in the area that's now Siberia. And those sedimentary rocks were full of coal and other hydrocarbons, which got burnt as this hot magma was pushed through it. And it caused eventually between 8 and 10 degrees of global heating. But it seems that the main pulse of the mass extinction happened at between 3 and 5 degrees of heating. And that wiped out, combined with toxic gases from the volcanism, acid rain, uh, about 90% 
of species on Earth, including all or almost all the large and medium-sized vertebrates, animals with backbones, the, the fish, the reptiles. Um, today, that obviously would include us. And you can see the rocks. There's a few places where you can see cliffs that, that this happens and it's like fossils, 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 and then nothing. Just red desert for millions of years. It took about 5 million years for any significant amount of plants to come back on Earth. Um, it took 7 million years before enough plants were growing to start laying down coal. Um, and it took probably about 50 million years before biodiversity recovered. Now, that mass extinction took place across several thousand years. That's how long it took to get to three or five degrees of global heating. We are doing all that in a few decades. So our chances of not triggering a mass extinction are actually very small. Our chances of not triggering Earth systems collapse are actually very small if we continue on the current trajectory. And in order to avoid that permo-triassic cataclysm happening again 251 million years later, we have to change everything. We have to leave fossil fuels in the ground. That's number one. But right up there, number two or equal number one, stop farming animals. That is up there with fossil fuels as being one of the two greatest drivers of extinction and earth systems collapse. If you do that, those two things together, leave fossil fuels in the ground, stop farming animals, you've probably solved about 95% of the problem. There's still other issues like synthetic chemicals, which urgently need to be dealt with. But, but those come in at number one and number two. Fix that, and we've got a very high chance of averting mass extinction. Don't fix either of those issues. We've got almost no chance at all. It's really interesting to hear that equivalence between the animal husbandry and burning of fossil fuels because i think traditionally people sort of talk when people talk about the man-made climate change they think of planes flying through the sky i don't think anyone necessarily thinks of a dairy farm no well it's we, we are just so far behind on that issue i mean it took long enough to get people aware of what fossil fuels were doing to the planet i mean i fought those brutal battles 25, 30 years ago, fighting climate deniers all the time, um, supporting the science against people who were saying, no, carbon dioxide is good for the planet, it's plant food, we all want to live in a warmer warmer place, and all of this nonsense, you know, which was just pumped out there by huge fossil fuel-backed campaigns. They poured tens of millions of dollars into these campaigns to persuade us that what they were doing was harmless. Now we're seeing exactly the same with the livestock industry. Mm -hmm. and, and it's got a whole new range of attack angles, of greenwashing, to try to persuade us that there's nothing wrong with killing 76 billion animals a year to feed ourselves and the massive range of environmental damage required to do so. And it's largely because of animal agriculture that farming is the worst thing we've ever done to the planet. Um, it's the number one cause of habitat destruction, the number one cause of deforestation this century, the number one cause of wildlife loss, number one cause of species extinction, number one cause of soil degradation, number one cause of water use, most importantly, the number one cause of land use. This is the, the great issue which is constantly neglected by environmentalists, the amount of land we use. And animal farming uses more land than all other human activities put together, about twice as much land as all other human activities. It's quite extraordinary, and yet we just blot it out of our consciousness. It's also one of the top causes of greenhouse gas pollution. In fact, um, it, it, um, animal farming alone, let alone the rest of farming, but just animal farming, produces more greenhouse gases than all global transport. And it's a major cause of water pollution and air pollution. You know, it, with water pollution, we talk in this country about the sewage being mm. pumped in by the water companies, which is disgusting, revolting, but it's only the second cause of, of pollution in this country. 
the number one cause of pollution is agriculture, mostly livestock, primarily dairy farms and chicken farms, which are just pumping out so much shit into the catchment that even if they aren't dumping it directly into the river, which some are, it flows off the land into the river and has the same effect, gets washed off. Yeah. You um you argue in your book Regenesis that we need to well maintain arable and arable farming and horticulture, but replace the uh anim the livestock component with factory produced protein sources. Why do you see that as the place to transition to? Why is that sort of that why should that become our source of protein? Well, to start off with, we already get our protein from factories. And and it's called animal farms, yeah. right? But we we don't like to see it as a factory. But if yeah, you won't, you won't ever be allowed in. But if you were to go into one of the giant chicken sheds or di giant pig sheds, where the great majority of that meat and the eggs come from, or if you were to go into one of these huge new dairy farms where so much of our milk and and dairy products is coming from, you would recognise that as a factory, a really vast dirty, filthy, inefficient, cruel factory. In fact, almost everything we eat comes through a factory at at least one point in its production. And if it's reared in one factory, it'll be slaughtered in another. Every single animal that ends up on our plate is slaughtered in a factory, a grotesque factory called an abattoir, right? Where you just don't want to know what's going on in there. People just blank it out. They they deliberately turn away from it. In the United States, over 95% of people eat meat, and a survey found that 47% want to ban slaughterhouses. This is the extent of the denial that we're in as to where our food comes from. We just don't want to know. We don't want to know that we're killing 76 billion animals a year to feed ourselves. We don't want to know the cruelty that that involves. We don't want to know about the blood and the shit that, that involves. We don't want to know about that massive environmental catastrophe that causes. So yes, I am calling for a different form of factory food production, in this case from microbes. Um, creatures which don't have nervous systems, which can't feel the pain, which aren't subjected to the cruelty that we subject animals to, and which can be produced with a tiny fraction of the land, the water, the fertilizer, uh, in a contained environment so the pollution isn't poured out into the living world and in ways which could help us greatly to restore the living planet while at the same time ensure that people, people are better fed. I wonder what your assessment of the sort of, you call it neo-peasant, but model of farming that basically says well, agrees with your diagnosis of the problems that, you know, mass industrialized agriculture is ecologically disastrous, removes people from, again, removes people from the food production chain, says, let's build a million small holdings across Britain. Let's combine, um, let's, let's go for agroforestry. Let's replant woodland. Let's introduce large herbivores, uh, similar to the way they have rewilded in net, for example, you know, there's, there's, there's potentially a model there to, you know, get large cattle, had these sort of decentralized, localized economies, return people to food production, deliver whole, wholesome, beneficial work, um, provide them with housing, but still have access to, let's say, you know, meat as a food source. Mm -hmm. Where do you, diff where do you, why, why don't you see that as a viable solution yeah. to the problem? Yeah. Well, there's, there's so many issues all muddled up into this bundle of neo-peasant farming, mm. which is really an attempt to feed a 21st century population with a Neolithic production system, and that ain't going to work well. So if we look at NEP, for, its, uh, for example, um, they produce 54 kilograms of meat per hectare per year. It's a tiny amount of meat. I mean, what they're doing is great. You know, it's a really lovely rewilding program. It's a really disastrous agricultural project if it were to be judged as an agricultural project because that would mean that we could each have three small portions of meat per year mm. if 10% of the whole country were turned into net and nothing else. That would be it. Yeah, we would starve very quickly indeed if that were a model. And of course, that's not how it would work out. People say, oh, well, we can all eat meat just very occasionally. Can you think of any other scarce luxury product where everybody has it as an equal share of it? You know, does everybody have the occasional bit of bluefin tuna sushi or the occasional bit of beluga caviar? No, obviously not.
Yeah, if the only way we produce meat was like that, they would be a super luxury product which only multimillionaires would eat. And they would eat it whenever they wanted and we wouldn't eat it at all. Right? That, that is the way it would shape out. So it's a total fantasy that we can sustain ourselves by those means. And people have confused, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes deliberately, this um, very, very low penetration, low density um, use of livestock as a conservation tool with livestock production. Mm. They're totally different things. It's, 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 it's like looking at a zoo and saying that's a natural ecosystem. These, these are, are entirely different scales on which it's being done. So you can't use one as a means of feeding people. It's just that's not what it's designed for, is not what it's capable of doing. And so there's this bucolic fantasy, this great romance about how we could produce our food, which is a formula both for global starvation and because of the enormous agricultural sprawl it would cause, the huge amount of land required to produce very little food, also a formula for mass environmental destruction. We, we could all eat pasture-fed meat, as the celebrity chefs and food writers tell us to, if we had several planets mm. and no room for wild ecosystems on any of them. But because we don't, pasture-fed meat is the worst possible product, is the most damaging of all food products. There was a study published in the United States looking at what would happen if people did what the foodies tell them to do and switch away from corn-fed beef, which is bad enough. I mean, that's a disaster in its own right switch from that to pasture-fed beef. And it found you would have to increase the area used for farming cattle by 270%. You'd have to cut down all the forests, water all the deserts, drain all the wetlands, degazette the national parks, demolish all the cities, and you'd still be importing much of your beef from Brazil. It's just people aren't doing the maths. This is the fundamental problem. Yeah, it, it took a long time with fossil fuels for, for people to start to do the maths. And there was this brilliant do the math tour across North America, persuading people to look at how much can we afford to burn? How much do we need to leave in the ground? And suddenly people started doing the numbers. We're not doing that with food at all. It's all pictures. It's pretty pictures. Look at this beautiful bucolic imagery. Look at these cows flicking their tails in the lush meadows. Look at this farmer with a with, with a, a, a um, stalk of corn sticking out of their mouth and a broad straw hat. It looks beautiful. It cannot feed the world. We have to do two things urgently. One is to feed the world and the other is to protect it, to protect the living planet while feeding its people. You can't do either of those things with this neo-peasant bullshit. <laughs> you see you see farmers as the collateral damage in those in that in that conversation that we're saying there, feed the world, save the planet. Destroy the farmers? Is that what is that what follows? No, well, I mean, the, the great majority of the farmers that we're talking about, you know, if you're talking about um, outdoor livestock farmers in a country like this, are totally dependent on farm subsidies. Yeah. If it weren't for our tax money, they would not be there. Mm. So I'm not saying they should leave the land and saying, let's continue to pay them, but to do something completely different which is to restore the land rather than to keep destroying it. I mean, the trouble is when, when you're keeping stock on that land, livestock, at any even remotely commercial concentration, so it's all loss making, but you know, if you're going to be supplying livestock for a market, they will be destroying almost everything on that land. They selectively browse out tree seedlings because those are highly nutritious, so trees can't grow. You, you want to fence out most of the wild herbivores. The reason we don't have large carnivores like wolves and lynx in this country is, is that the livestock farmers have resisted their reintroduction elsewhere in the world. They are the driving force behind the destruction of large carnivores. Um, everything except things which eat cow dung lose out from having those, uh, ha having those animals on the land. Um, and so you, you cause massive environmental degradation to produce not very much food. Let's instead pay those farmers to restore those ecosystems. We'll concentrate farming in places where it makes sense. We should be switching to a largely plant-based and microbe-based diet, but certainly away from animal farming. Uh, we keep people on the land, but as genuine stewards and custodians on that of that land. The only way we're going to get through this century is with a mass global rewilding, the restoration of ecosystems 
on a vast scale, bringing back the forests, bringing back the savannas, bringing back the wetlands, the, the natural grasslands, the mangroves, the seafloor, the coral reefs, the kelp forests, all these wonderful ecosystems which we've been exterminating. Only by bringing them back can we stop the sixth great extinction in its tracks? Can we stop the collapse of our life support systems? Only by bringing them back can we draw down much of the carbon dioxide that we've released into the atmosphere. Because we now know that it's not enough merely to decarbonize our economies, which we need to do obviously as quickly as we possibly can. But at the same time, we've also got to attend to some of the carbon dioxide we've already released, because otherwise we're going to breach 1.5 degrees, probably two degrees of global heating. Um, the only way to stay in that safe, safe space is through allowing ecosystems as they recover to draw down that carbon dioxide and turn it into solid carbon, wood, peat, mud, things like this are, are solid carbon, coral reefs, oyster reefs, kelp forests, all of these are solid carbon and they can uh, they can turn that dangerous greenhouse gas back into living organisms. Do you think there's nothing to be said for achieving that noble aim? If you democratize the process, create sort of, you know, individual people who are wardens of the land, shepherds of the land, stakeholders for their own little parcel of it, you can simultaneously support that kind of rewilding effort, potentially challenge or break the sort of supermarket oligopoly on food production. And if and if you in, instead shift food production towards, let's say, a, a factory-type mechanism, or, well, not a shift, but a different kind, let's, that's the point I've already made, that it becomes harder to achieve that kind of um, regeneration of the landscape? Well, it's very hard to have um, a, a functioning ecology and an extractive industry going on on the same piece of land. Um, in almost all cases, they are at odds. I mean, there's some very low-level extractive industries which can survive alongside uh, functioning e ecosystems. There's very few of them on Earth, and they generally are only taking a very small amount out of it. But if we're going to be taking out enough to feed ourselves, then we're not going to be doing that alongside rich and functional ecosystems, which means above all having top predators in there. That's really crucial mm. to, to allow an ecosystem to work. They are the regulators of the ecosystem. Wild herbivores, which can move freely in and out of it. Um, dense vegetation, particularly trees in places which formerly held trees. That's absolutely essential. Um, peat formation, where peat should be growing, that's also really, really important. All of these things are made much harder by trying to run an extractive industry in the same places. And basically, we should be concentrating production you know, on land, which is really good for producing crops. That's where we should be sustaining high yields. But um, on land, which is really bad for producing crops and can only sustain livestock, which um, is devastating even when it produces relatively small amounts of food, we should basically be taking that out of production, turning it back to nature, allowing ecosystems to come back and producing our food by different means. And the different means are actually really exciting. You know, this isn't like, oh, well, we'll have to do it this way. This is like, oh my God, we're opening an entire new food frontier here, a whole food revolution, as profound as the invention of agriculture. You know, it, it's got this enormous potential, not just to substitute animal products, which is obviously the first thing it needs to do, but then to lead to the development of a whole new range of products, which we just can't even imagine at this stage any more than the first farmers to capture a wild cow were thinking about camembert. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Politics Show podcast. So uh, this is probably the nail in the coffin. I think you've kind of made your case, but regenerative farming, you think, is basically a, a non-viable solution to the problems we face. Well, regenerative has become one of these words like sustainable, which is just tacked onto the front of whatever you're doing already. So regenerative ranching, formerly known as ranching. <laughs> um, now, in, in principle, I would love to see everything becoming genuinely regenerative, but the word has already been so polluted by greenwash that it's become almost useless because everybody's saying what I'm doing is regenerative. What I've been doing for years is regenerative because I've called it regenerative. Now, a genuine agroecology, a genuine regenerative agriculture to produce our crops, our grain, our vegetables, our fruit, that would be a great thing as long as the yields are high because low yield farming means agricultural sprawl. It means you must use more land to produce a given amount of food. That's what extensive agriculture means. You know, people are constantly banging on about the evils of intensive farming and intensive farming is doing a great deal of harm. And so they say we should pursue extensive farming as well. But that does a great deal of harm too because of the amount of land it uses. The problem is not the adjective. It's the maths, right? So we, we have to pursue what I see as a holy grail in food production, which is high yields with low impacts. And one way of doing that for our protein-rich, fat-rich foods, which we're currently getting from livestock, is to do it by brewing. Um, in, instead of farming multicellular organisms, animals and plants, you farm unicellular organisms in, in, in a brewery with precision fermentation. It's just a refined form of brewing. But there are also some really exciting ways, new ways of growing our grain crops or growing our fruits and vegetables, which do promise high yields with low impacts. One of the most exciting is perennial grain crops. Now, this is a dream which has been pursued by scientists for about a century, but it's finally coming to fruition and in a very exciting way. In nature, large areas covered by annual plants, which means plants that live and die within one year, are, are pretty rare and they generally occur in the wake of a disaster. So like a volcanic eruption or a landslide or a major fire, which kills all the long-lived plants, the perennial plants, the trees and the shrubs and, 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 and the deep-rooted plants which last from one year to the next. And that's the opportunity for annual plants to move in. And annual plants, this is why we, we've cultivated them, they breed very fast and they, they put a lot of effort into making seed and they scatter that as wide as they can, occupy the ground for a year or two until the perennial plants come back and crowd them out. So in order to grow our annual grain crops, which means all our cereal crops like wheat and maize and barley and our legumes like soy and lentils and chickpeas and all that and our oil seeds like rapeseed and, and the rest, in order to, 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 to do that, we have to create an environmental disaster every year. We, we have to clear the land. That's a terrible thing to do. Can you imagine? You, you're just destroying everything and making the land bare. We're so used to it that we celebrate it. You know, we think, oh, that's great. You know, look at that. Love, lovely. They're plowing the land. And, uh, but that is to destroy the entire ecosystem. All the above ground life forms are being wiped out by ploughing that land or indeed by spraying that land to, to kill all the plants that might compete with, with your crops. And then having sown your grains, you have to pamper them, the baby plants, you know, so you have to give them loads of fertiliser. You, you have to kill off the competitors with herbicides. You have to kill off the insects and the other potential pests with pesticides. You, you might have to water them using our, our precious groundwater. Um, and so you, you have to pamper and pamper these crops, bring them up to um, to their maximum growth point, uh, then they produce the grain, then you harvest them, and then you start all over again. 
So what if we could produce our grain from crops which stay in the ground for several years at a time? You would massively reduce the amount of damage you're doing. And led by a group called the Land Institute in Kansas, but with various other research groups around the, the world, they've been looking across thousands of species for candidates which would make perennial grain crops, and they've found some. Uh, in fact, some of them look really promising, and one of them has already been fully commercialized, which is a perennial rice variety, which they got from crossing ordinary annual short grain rice with one of its wild relatives that's perennial. And uh, they did this with Yunnan University in China, and now tens of thousands of hectares are growing this, this short grain rice. Farmers are desperate for the seed uh, because it greatly reduces their costs. They don't need nearly so much plowing and, and fertilizer and, and herbicide and all the rest of it. Um, it also greatly reduces their need for labor and a load of the young people have, have left the countryside and gone to the cities. And it causes much less soil erosion, which has become a really big problem in southern China uh, because you're not plowing it every year. So um, with these deeper roots um, that, that the perennial crops put down, they can get much more of their own water, they can get much more of their own nutrients, they need much less looking after than our annual crops do. And they're also more environmentally resilient. So for instance, the Land Institute is developing a perennial sunflower at the moment to produce sunflower oil. And they have been growing their perennial sunflower alongside the ordinary annual sunflowers. They had a big drought. It completely wiped out the annual sunflowers and the perennials just sailed through it because their roots were down much deeper and their structures above ground were much tougher. I'm glad you mentioned uh, greenwashing in the first part of your answer because well, with respect, you've been talking about environmental issues for decades. Mm. Um, you know, you've been you've been banging that drum, talking about the evidence, and the evidence is clear, and the evidence is stark. So, what's going on? Why isn't why isn't it landing? I know, obviously, uh, environmentalism and activism has increased in recent years, but is it a rejection of empiricism? Is it blind optimism? Is there something more sinister mm. going on in in the way that there is, there doesn't seem to be this grand global coalition, which there probably should be to confront this issue yeah well instead of getting together against our common threats we're being set at each other and we're just ripping each other apart on social media we're, we're fighting each other rather than fighting the industries which are destroying the living planet which are destroying our life support systems and and this isn't an accident you know th this is this is this has been fomented deliberately by greenwash capital. You know, we saw how the tobacco industries poured tens of millions of dollars into trying to persuade people that c cigarette smoking was safe, that it wasn't causing lung cancer. The very same people who developed those campaigns went on to develop the fossil fuel industries campaigns. Now the same people are developing the livestock industries greenwash campaigns. And and alongside them, alongside these directly funded industry lobbyists, you get all these conspiracy merchants who, who are basically culture war entrepreneurs and making an absolute fortune from spreading conspiracies. And what they do is they direct attention away from the real scandals, the real stuff that's going on. I mean, there are massive conspiracies happening all around us, but they're just not interested in those. The only ones they're interested in are the ones that they make up or, or they recite that other people have made up. So if you take, for instance, the VIP lane for protective equipment du du during the COVID pandemic, this is a massive scandal where the, the conservative government conspired with its friends in business, you know, Tory donors, uh, people in the House of Lords, all sorts of weird friends and, and connections. They gave them contracts to supply uh, protective equipment during the pandemic. Many of them were completely incapable of supplying that equipment. Um, if they did, it was often faulty. Most of it was unused. Billions were just spaffed straight into the, the accounts of, of, of these cronies of Tory ministers. In any other country, we call it that what it is, corruption, straightforward corruption on a massive scale. Um, 
profiteering during a pandemic. It doesn't get much worse than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a famous film called The Third Man, which is about profiteering in, in, in a pandemic where this evil character, Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, is, is, is this sort of fugitive from justice, having been smoked out by providing false medical equipment, false drugs during a pandemic. And now we've got hundreds of Harry Limes running around with no one having been held to account. Not one of them is in prison. None of them have to be on the run because they haven't had their collar felt. They're just, and are the conspiracy theorists interested in this? Not a bit of it. They don't touch it. They won't even look at it. I've directly confronted a couple of them and said, why, if you're so interested in conspiracies, and this is a real one, you know, you could, it's, fully documented. Why won't you touch this? And both of them said exactly the same thing. Oh, we knew all about that already. Oh, did you? That was clever of you. So it was you who smoked this out, was it? Not the Good Law Project, mm. not the, not Channel 4, not not The Guardian. It was you who found this out and you knew it all along, did you? Somehow, you just sort of intuited it, did you? You worked out who the villains were. You worked out what Matt Hancock was doing. Worked out what Rishi Sunak was doing. That's very clever of you. Yeah, brilliant. Congratulations. Shame you didn't publish it. <laughs> <laughs> should we? Um, should we talk about Russell Brand? Uh, yeah, this sort of seems to lead on naturally, doesn't it? So, I mean, if you could, if you could spell out for people uh, what Russell's been saying about the farmers in uh, the Netherlands yeah. and how that relates to actually quite a long history. Actually, not just of conspiracy theories, but particularly actually the far right and yeah. that connection to the land and, and farmers. Yeah. So so Russell used to be a hero of mine, right? In, in 2014, The Guardian said, will you nominate your hero of the year? And I nominated Russell Brand. And he was amazing. He was doing incredible stuff. I mean, he's a brilliant guy. You know, he's super smart. He's very fast. He's funny. Uh, he, he, he's got a great way of reaching people, of talking, talking to people. And... His talents were then put to good use. You know, he was mobilizing people. He was sort of helping to sort of build a revolutionary left, which was actually attending to real issues. Since then, blimey. I mean, he's just he's just completely jumped the shark. And he's he's gone on to what is highly lucrative, gets him massive viewing. He's got six million subscribers on YouTube. He gets a great deal of attention. He can monetize that attention. I've seen his company accounts. I mean, he's making millions every year. This is, this is a highly lucrative business. So when he tells you you're being exploited by multimillionaires, he's not wrong. Right. Um, and, and, in, in this particular case, he's been promoting this idea, which has become very popular among the far right, that the Dutch government is trying to throw farmers off the land. And the far right then goes on to say, and put immigrants in, in their place and asylum seekers. It's going to, to get rid of the true people of the land. Now, Russell hasn't mentioned the immigrants bit, but all the other components are there in the conspiracy theory that he's been promoting. That you know what is really going on in the Netherlands is that there is a court ruling, as a uh, as a result of European law, saying we're just producing far too much nitrate pollution. We're trashing the whole ecosystem by pouring all these nitrates out into rivers and 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 onto the land, which it just can't absorb. And as a result, it's trashing everything. The rivers are turning into filthy sewers, basically, and and we're causing. Uh, pollution at sea as the rivers pour into the sea, all the rest of it. And that is just straightforwardly against environmental law. Now, having neglected this issue for far too long, finally, after this court ruling in 2019, the Dutch government said, all right, well, we have to take action. We've got no choice now. We're legally obliged to take action. So we have to encourage the major nitrate pollution uh, uh, sources of pollution to change their practice. And the biggest polluters of nitrate pollution in the Netherlands is the livestock industry. So the government produced all these incentives, all this encouragement to change, but a lot of livestock farmers just flatly refused. They, they said, we're not going to change this. And so the final option is to say, well, you know, if, if you won't do this voluntarily, we're going to have to buy you out. Um, they offer them a very good deal, more than the value of their farms and for compulsory purchase. But then the far right got hold of it, not just in the Netherlands, but all over the world, you know, fermented by people like T Tucker Carlson, Carlson, sorry, start that bit again, fermented by people like 
Tucker Carlson in the US, um, but, um, but pushed through far-right channels worldwide. And it became part of this great replacement conspiracy theory. The farmers are the true, authentic, rooted people of the land. They are being evicted to make way for, for globalists and aliens and elitists um, who are bizarrely asylum seekers and immigrants, refugees, um, who are going to be moved onto the land in, in their place. And this is part of a global conspiracy uh, coordinated by the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates and Monsanto. None of them, incidentally, have anything to do with the um, Dutch government's nitrate rulings. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's things to be said about all of them, but they're 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 completely unconnected to 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 this issue in the Netherlands. Monsanto hasn't existed since 2018. Yeah, the World Economic Forum. I mean, it stinks, but it's it's got absolutely nothing to do with it. And Bill Gates. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's. All sorts of stuff he does, I, I really dislike, but he's got absolutely nothing to do with this. And so what does Russell Brand do? He wades into this and he goes on about, oh, the farmers are being thrown off the land um, so that, um, so that, that, that there's this great land grab inspired by the World Economic Forum, by Monsanto, by Bill Gates. He's just sort of hitting every one of those click triggers. You know, they're, they're all terms which guarantee a particular audience. You know, this stuff is very popular. It races around far-right circles all over the world. And while he's not, he's not specifically pushing a far-right narrative, he's pushing a, a narrative that plays with the far-right, if you see the distinction. Mm. So, A, he chooses topics which are of interest to the far-right. I mean, if you look at his videos, there's almost no topic anywhere in his videos which aren't of intense interest to the far-right. Um, and and yet there's huge issues he never touches, but those issues are the ones that the far right's not interested in. So he'll, he'll latch onto stuff which is completely petty and ridiculous, but has got massive far right traction. You know, he's not on the far right, but he's cynically playing to that audience because that is where the attention is and that is where the money is. That is how to get eyeballs. Um, and so he's pushing this theme which is just the latest version of a very old and very dark conspiracy theory. Because this great replacement idea with these, the globalists pushing the true authentic people, the farmers off the land and replacing them, is actually an update of the Nazi blood and soil story. And the Nazis talked about the, the true Aryan people of the land who are the farmers, the authentic Germans, being displaced by cosmopolitans and aliens by which they meant Jews. And this blood and soil narrative was a major driver of the Holocaust and the other atrocities that the Nazis committed. Now, uh, yeah, Russell's a bright guy, but you know, does he understand what he's doing? Does he understand the fire he's playing with? I don't know. I can't say. Only he knows that. But he is certainly playing with fire. And he's promoting one of the nastiest, darkest, most dangerous and destructive conspiracy theories ever aired. There's... um. Yeah, I'm, you're you're right to talk about it in that way, and I'm I'm often confused when people, for example, talk about the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, or you know, you could look at the recent Ferrari around fifteen minute cities, which seems to me yeah. to be like quite a banal urban planning system, <laughs> um, and you know, it's sort of interpreted as this attempt to imprison people and stop them from leaving their local area. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about uh, oligarchy and conspiracy, who it. You know, because because typically those actors you mentioned, Hitler, there, Mussolini as well. You know, their connection to extraordinary wealth and how it serves, and how wealth often serves to misdirect and you know promote these nonsense theories because it gets you looking in the wrong direction. Yeah. Well, well, this is a great irony. You know, you've got Russell ranting away about uh, about the elite on a platform, Rumble, which is financed, among others, by Peter Thiel, one of the most unpleasant billionaires on the planet. Um, you, you, it, for billionaires, it works very well to have us misdirected 
and 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 to ensure that we attack scapegoats rather than looking at the people who are actually trashing our lives and trashing the planet, who, who are the oligarchs. Now, when we say oligarchs, people think of Russians, but actually there's oligarchs in every country. Rupert Murdoch is an oligarch. Um, Lord, yeah, Rishi Sunak is an oligarch. He's our first oligarch prime minister um we there's some very very unpleasant oligarchs who have inordinate huge power they translate their economic power into political power charles coke robert mercer you know the, these people are, are deeply dangerous deeply sinister they they are um a, a direct threat to democracy and a direct threat to our life support systems because the interests they promote are extremely damaging to our life support systems. Um, and so, yeah, they are very well served by these conspiracy theories which have us fighting each other, which have us fighting spectres. So if you take the, the World Economic Forum and its Great Reset, for instance, now the World Economic Forum is a pretty disgusting organization. You know, they bring together um, some of the richest, most powerful people every year in Davos and they all scratch each other's backs and they all agree that they're wonderful people and everybody else is shit. That's basically the approach. And um, and and Klaus Schwab, who who runs it, is a real schmoozer. You know, he's 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 an easy person to demonize because he just has spent his whole life sort of rubbing the backs of of, of the rich and powerful. But he's got no power in his own right. You know, he he can bring these people together, but he's not the puppet master. He's not the controller of the new world order, like like the conspiracy theorists say. I and mean, part of the the story comes about because there's this photo of him wearing what looks like a sort of Ming the Merciless sort of spacesuit, um, uh, uh, standing at a podium which has got these weird logos on it, where people say, "Ah, obviously this is this is him running a great Masonic conspiracy." And actually, he's wearing a, a gown from a Lithuanian university which was awarding him an honorary doctorate. It's a really weird gown, but <laughs> that's all it is. And the logos are the logos of the university. Um, so, you know, it's the stupidest reasons that people latch onto this stuff. But the oligarchs must be rubbing their hands with glee because we're not focusing on them. Mm. You know, who's trashed this country more than anybody else? Rupert Murdoch. He doesn't even live here. And yet he's got more power than all the voters put together. You know, government stand or fall on his word. He is the kingmaker. He determines basically who wins the election by throwing his, his, his weight behind those people, whether it's Fox News in the US, whether it's the Sun, the Times and the rest of his, his stable here in the UK, his, his massive impacts he's got in Australia. I mean, basically, wherever Rupert Murdoch is, politics goes to shit. Yeah, why aren't we focused on him? Mm. Does Russell Brand ever mention Rupert Murdoch? Is he interested in him? No, because the far right is not interested in Rupert Murdoch. Because, you know, Rupert Murdoch is aligned with them. Fox News is a Murdoch vehicle, and that is one of the most important platforms for the far right. I don't want to end the interview on as dark a place as where we've just been. So a happier question, uh, George. What gives you hope? Yeah. So my hope comes from people, uh, and I see these incredible movements all around the world who, despite everything, are standing up for a better future. Um, we've seen a whole series in countries like this, including Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future, Green New Deal Rising, Insulate Britain, Just Stop Oil, there are similar movements around the world. And we know that if we can get enough people out there, we can reach critical mass. In fact, we've got a pretty good idea of what critical mass is. It's about 25% of the population. If you get 25% of people committed to a new idea, change will happen. That is the social tipping point. Society is a complex system, just like an ecosystem, and it has tipping points just like an ecosystem does. And while Tipping in an ecosystem is catastrophic. Tipping in, in society can be a very beneficial thing if you can tip it in the right direction. And there have been some radical, extraordinary changes in, in, in the past few de decades, which have basically been social tipping. So, you know, if we were having this conversation 30 years ago, you, were, you and I might be smoking. 
Yeah, the, the camera operators might be smoking. The room would be a fog of smoke. You know, we don't talk about smoke-filled rooms for nothing. Yeah. You know, almost every public space was full of smoke. Even restaurants were full of smoke. Now, if anyone's smoking, they're furtively hiding behind the dustbins. You know, like it's a really shameful thing to be doing um, because it just flipped. You know, it reached a critical mass. It reached that 25% of people who thought, actually, sm smoking in public places, secondhand smoke, is a really shit idea. It's, it's imposing harm on other people. Similarly, with marriage equality. You know, not many years ago, marriage equality was going to be the end of civilization as we know it. Oh, my God, if gay people are allowed to marry, the heavens will be red to sunder. I I've literally met two people who used to hold those views who have said, so, well, of course, I've always believed in marriage equality. <laughs> because after the war, everyone becomes a member of the resistance, mm -hmm. right? And and what happened in, those, in that case was that gay rights campaigners very effectively widened the social circle, the, the concentric circle. Of, of people committed to a new idea until they hit that 25%, that tipping point. And then suddenly, it wasn't that most people were persuaded, they just went along with it. You know, you got the 25% committed people and then everybody else thinks, oh, hang on, the wind has changed. We've got to tap round to catch that wind. We don't want to be left behind. That's how it happens. You don't have to persuade your furious father-in-law or your grumpy uncle or who, whoever that, to, to change their mind. Most people won't actually consciously change their mind. They'll just go with the flow once the flow has changed. And so people despair. They think, oh, you know, I'll never persuade Rupert Murdoch. You do not have to persuade Rupert Murdoch. You have to isolate Rupert Murdoch. You have to freeze those antisocial people out. You have to create the world you want to see and bring as many people to you as you possibly can. And we now know that's about a quarter of the population. And once you've got there, you've won. So that's where I find hope. George Monbiot, thank you so much. Not another one? It's the Politics Joe podcast. If you enjoyed that conversation, let us know at politicsjoe underscore UK on Twitter or leave us a review wherever you're listening. And if you want more political chat with a healthy side of humour, make sure you're subscribed to the Politics Joe podcast wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next one. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.